Hey, welcome to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. All right. And Murray, oh, this feels, it feels different to be asking you the questions. I have the power now. <laughs> Uh, Murray, if you could ask God for one thing, what would it be? Well, I'd actually love to hear what other people would say to this question as well. If you want to type something up in the in the chat and and shoot it through, because um, I think it's it's something that um, yeah we probably don't think about a lot. Um, I think for me personally, I'm I'm quite often praying to God about, you know, certain situations, but I probably don't actually ask like God for things a lot, if I'm being honest. And we're kind of like given this really interesting image in, in Matthew two of these wise men bringing these, these gifts of gold. And I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that if we didn't have frankincense and myrrh in those passages, most of us probably would be completely unaware of what frankincense and myrrh are. They're pretty random gifts for today. I don't think that there's frankincense or myrrh on the stock exchange. Gold we still get, but like frankincense and myrrh is a bit of a weird one. Um, But I'd love um, to hear in the comment section, if anybody has any thoughts, what they would ask God for if they could ask him for one thing. Yes. I, I, I think it might be Morris, actually. It says Claire, but I think it's Morris. Um, often ask for wisdom in making decisions to honor God, which is really funny because it's it's kind of the the answer that I was kind of leaning towards myself. So great minds think alike. I love it. Um, because it's this interesting passage that we see that a lot of us kind of know in, in 1 Kings 3, where um, God appears to King Solomon in a dream and, and asks him, um, what do you want? You can, you can have anything that you want. And Solomon, as we, we know, asks for wisdom, which I think is really interesting when we come to this passage that it's the wise men who are kind of coming to Jesus. Like, what's going on here? And I was kind of, as I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't help but think about Psalm 14, uh, which starts, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. It's kind of this really interesting thing here because it's these wise men who are seeking God. They're seeking Jesus. They're trying to find him, which is really fascinating. I think, I don't know for me personally, I know in stages of my life, um, in conversations, it's very easy to be made to feel like you're the fool for believing in God, that you're the fool for being a Christian, that you're the fool for having this faith in, in Jesus. Um, but the Bible actually says the complete opposite, that the fool says there is no God. And in reality, it's like these wise men, right, who are seeking God. They're seeking to understand and and paying tribute and homage to, to Jesus, which is this really fascinating thing. There's another cool Proverbs 9.10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So I think it's this like fascinating thing that, that we start off with in this passage that they're these really smart, intelligent, wise men who are seeking 
God, who are wanting to understand what's going on. Um, and, and it's kind of a, a bit of a crazy story that we see because there's a lot of things going on in it which seem quite foreign to us. I think maybe we've started to become so accustomed and attuned to the story that we sometimes forget some of the crazy things that don't necessarily make sense to modern readers, right? I just find the whole star thing just utterly bizarre. Um, I just don't really understand it, <laughs> if I'm honest. I don't get this whole Magi who, it's interesting, um, the Magi, if you read in the Old Testament, they're magicians. They're enemies of the Israelites. Daniel goes against a magician. Moses and Aaron go against various magicians. They're usually bad people, but here they are worshipping Jesus. And it ties in, remember how in the genealogy, um, Matthew has his women, Jesus' mothers, they're all Gentiles. Interesting. It's all connecting in Jesus is the king, not of the Jews, but of all the nations. So, so Murray, please answer this question for me, because I always wonder this. Why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, this is like an interesting thing that I kind of found in, in studying and preparing for, for this chat, because I think maybe I've, I've taken on some common assumptions about what those gifts maybe represent. Um, and I was actually kind of being a little bit provocative in, in choosing that We Three Kings song, because while that song isn't theologically incorrect, it's maybe a little bit biblically incorrect and making some assumptions on things. Now, those assumptions that are made, as I said, aren't, aren't theologically incorrect, but they may be not what Matthew uh, was, was actually explaining as he wrote about this. So what do I mean by that? Well, I think that for a lot of us, when we think of these three gifts as gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I've been taught in the past, and, and I think, you know, by singing Christmas carols such as We Three Kings, we, we, we figure that these are kind of representing three different aspects of Jesus's nature, right? I don't know about you, but I was kind of taught as a kid, like the gold represents the, the kingship of Jesus, the frankincense, the divinity of Jesus, that this was something that the priest would bring to offer at the temple and the myrrh to sort of hint at this idea of his humanity and his, his death, because this is um, a, something that was used in anointing oils during um, crucifixion and, and burial. But it's really interesting when we kind of start looking at, at the Gospel of Matthew and we start looking at the Old Testament and gifts that were brought to kings, actually all three of these gifts just point to kingship. Which like in some ways is like, I'm not going to lie. This is, this was my brain when I heard that or read that, I should say, I was like, ah, it's kind of not as interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's kind of cool. I like this idea of there being these three gifts that represent three different aspects of Jesus. Um, and like I said, that's not theologically incorrect. You know, it's not that Jesus isn't King God and, you know, the sacrificial lamb who is to die for our sin. There's just that this moment in this story isn't the point that's actually being made. They're these three gifts that all point towards kingship. So for example, if we look at, you know, obviously again, 1 Kings 10, we see gold. We kind of already understand that as the queen of Sheba brings all of this gold to King Solomon to recognize him as king. Um, they say, I was reading like some interesting little commentaries. They reckon that the amount of gold, 120 talents that the queen of Sheba brought to Solomon would have by today's standards on the stock exchange, got you about 240 
forty million dollars. So that's that's no small gift of gold. This is this is a huge sort of um, yeah um, honor and and an allusion to his kingship. Um, and they reckon that would have taken about eight hundred camels in that caravan of camels to carry that much gold. But there's there's other things that are actually given to King Solomon by the Queen of Sheba. I think we focus on the gold, but there's also spices and, and precious stones. Now, those spices obviously could have been a, a few different things, but the reality is like it could have been like this, this frankincense could have been one of them. But there's this continual idea throughout the, the Old Testament that gold and frankincense are actually both gifts for kings. And then when we kind of get to myrrh, that's that's sort of a more interesting one, right? Because we do actually hear in both Mark and Luke's account, we hear this mention of, of myrrh as being associated with Jesus's burial and crucifixion. But I, I heard something really interesting recently, which is we have to, a lot of the time, allow each gospel to interpret itself. So while we've got sort of four different portraits of Jesus from four different angles, sort of representing him from slightly different lenses or angles, we can't kind of, we got to be careful of not drawing out too much from other gospels to try and see what Matthew was trying to make in this point. Because I think if Matthew really wanted to make the point that the myrrh was relevant to his burial and crucifixion, he would have mentioned it too in his gospel when it got to that moment. But it's actually nowhere to be found once the burial and crucifixion of Jesus or crucifixion and burial of Jesus actually occurs, which kind of starts to make you think, oh, okay, maybe the myrrh is also pointing towards something other than that. So in Psalm 45, 8, um, this is, this is a, a song to the king. Um, and it says, all your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. This idea that the king's robes were adorned with myrrh. And then Proverbs 7.17, it's talking about, um, I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. But Song, uh, Song of Songs 3.6 is really interesting because they actually make a direct reference to, again, the king of uh, King Solomon and myrrh. You've got, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Like a column of smoke scented with myrrh and frankincense from all the spice of the merchants. Behold, it is Solomon's carriage. So it's suddenly this interesting thing that really what these gifts are, are, are more pointing towards is not kingship, divinity, and, and sort of crucifixion and sacrifice. But in this moment of, of Matthew, it's actually pointing towards kingship, kingship, and kingship, which I think is kind of quite interesting to like our society because I think we can quite often get the idea that Jesus is God, and I think we can get the idea that he died on a cross and rose again on the third day for our sins. I think we often forget about his kingship. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because how does Matthew begin his genealogy? The beginning of, well, hang on, let me say again. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so that's really interesting how you're pointing all the gifts to his kingship, which particularly as a, well, we have a queen, but not a king here in Australia. So we don't think of kings, do we? But yeah, that's really interesting. Matthew's reiterating, here's the son of David, over and over and over again. And even the nations are recognizing that, like Solomon. So that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, question three, here's a big question I've always wondered. Where did the wise men or the magi come from? Where is their location, Murray? Inform us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, there's, there's no sort of like direct geographical location that I'm going to give because all we kind of get is from the east. That's that's what we get in the book of Matthew. So what what can we kind of grab? Well, there's, there's at this point estimations. So there's no, no definite things, but there's a lot of clues that we're given again about where these wise men may have come from. And many believe that these magi were, were Persians from Babylon. Um, it's something that you actually picked up on earlier, the, the story of Daniel, right? He's, he's in Babylon in the Old Testament. And King Nebuchadnezzar assigns Daniel as, as, a, as the high chief of the Magi. Um, in Daniel 5.11, he's assigned as the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, which is interesting, and diviners. So, so like, why is this important? Well, if, if, if these wise men are searching out this, this star in the sky as, as, as astrologers and they're, you know, coming from this Babylonian empire, well, throughout the Old Testament, again, Babylon, and even in Revelation, right, Babylon is held up as sort of this, this example of what not to be, <laughs> as, as, you know, the, the worst of, of, of um, the opposite of what, you know, Israel is aiming to be. And then suddenly we've got these wise men who are coming from sort of the ends of the earth culturally to pay homage to Jesus and recognizing him. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting when you start looking at this, that it's not just kind of going from, from one sort of part, but it's, it's all of these different features, which are pointing towards these Kings or these wise men, I should say, coming from Babylon, which is kind of unexpected place. It's not where you'd expect people to be coming from to worship Jesus. Yeah, it's interesting because the East at the time that Jesus was born was seen as the place of where evil was from. It's where an empire called the Peruvians were from, and that was a big threat to the Roman Empire. So these guys from the East, it's like, oh, these strange magi who could be good, they could be bad. And we, it's almost like subverting expectations. The assumption is when reading the Old Testament, magi are bad. Magicians are bad, but here they're good. It's, again, going back to the Old Testament, the king, the son of David is leading all the nations to him. And, and that's very, and that's the point of Matthew's gospel. And how's he end his gospel? What are his disciples meant to do? Go out to all the nations. Uh, yeah, that's really fascinating. Now, I believe here we have a game, don't we? We do. Do you want to explain the game yeah, to us? You want to ask question, I'll ask the question, then we'll go into the game. So what's going on with this star? And I already kind of flagged this already. It's like, I find it really bizarre, this star. So so I think I've got, so guys, for those of us who want to get on uh, for this game, we've got a little bit of a game in gallery view for the, for the kids and adults alike. So could I get star one? up on the screen, can we find where star one is on the screen? Who can quickly find it if you want to type up in the comment section where the star is or someone could unmute their mic and you're like, hey, Gabby, Emily. Nice, so good, all right. So hopefully now we know what's gonna be looking like. So another star's about to pop up. So star number two, hit it. Can we see a star? Where is it? Who can see a star? Is it, hey, there we go, Brian, nice. So good. All right. Let's be like the wise men. Let's keep looking for those stars. Star number three. Hit it. Hey, that's some beautiful art and craft at home. I'm loving that glitter. Oh, that's that's 
It's going to be all over your carpet for weeks, Stevenson. Thank you so much for that commitment. That's a real sacrifice to the church. <laughs> all right, star number four. Let's hit it. Can we find it? Where is it? Where is it? Can we see it? Hey, there we go. Thomas is too good at this game. Just <laughs> so good. Gabby and Thomas, loving it. Yes, Keith. All right. And we've got a final star. Where is it? Can we see it? Can we see the final star? Where is it? Hey, there we go. Liam and Matt, loving it. Guys, thank you so much for playing a part. Hopefully that was fun for you guys. It's very hard to think of original fun games to do on Zoom. So <laughs> hopefully that was fun. Thank you for all my, my stars. You're all stars. Um, so what is going on with the star? Well, the somewhat disappointing answer is we don't definitely know. That's, that's the reality. But there are some very good informed theories. And there's kind of two, two ideas. One is that it was some sort of shooting star, some sort of shooting star because it's, it's moving, right? And the, the wise men are following it somewhere. Now, why, why is this important? Because we've got to remember that the wise men are, uh, if not from Babylon, coming from somewhere that isn't, you know, an, an Israel, a, Jew, a Jewish culture. So why do they see a star in the sky and think a king of the Jews is coming? Because that's what they, that's how they interpret what's happening in the sky. So if it was some sort of big, big shooting star, well, that actually can kind of tie into um, this, this sort of astrological event that happened in 44 BC called the Great Comet or Caesar's Comet, um, the Julian star. So it was this seven-day sort of uh, comets in the sky, which occurred a little bit after Julius Caesar's death. And a lot of people at the time interpreted that sort of astrological phenomenon just after Julius Caesar's death as that he was now divine. But the reality is we, we, don't, we don't really know, and that's probably a less likely occurrence because at the end of the day, you know, a, a bunch of comets in the sky, why does that point towards a king of the Jews? But I really like this sort of theory that uh, N.T. Wright puts out. Um, so I want to I ask you guys a question for the kids. Oh, oh, my goodness, the Jakes. I'm loving that bear. I was going to ask you guys a question who, uh, which, which kid or adult can tell me what is the largest planet in our solar system? What's the largest planet in our solar system? Who can help me out with that? Hey, Jupiter. Nice one. So Jupiter, by a lot of sort of um, astrologers and, and, uh, and even astronomers, these two kind of roles went hand in hand back in ancient times. Astronomy wasn't seen as the lesser science. Astrology and astronomy sort of went together in a way. They saw Jupiter as the king star. And they reckon that Jupiter was actually aligning with another planet in our solar system um, around sort of 7 BC. And uh, it was actually the planet in our solar system that has rings around it. Who knows which one that one is? The one of the rings, a hey, Saturn. So Saturn was actually seen by, by a lot of um, cultures as Israel's star. So if you see Jupiter and Saturn aligning in the sky, you see the king star and you see the star of, of the Jews aligning together, pointing towards something. And this is N.T. Wright's theory that maybe this was the astrological phenomenon that was happening that was leading the wise men to Jesus. Well, regardless of what it is, 
it's a remarkable act. Well, I guess any creation act is a remarkable act of God. But what I find remarkable is that for the Israelites, astrology was all forbidden. You couldn't look to divination. That's what they, as part of it, you had to rely on Yahweh. You, you had your high priests and you'd go to the temple tabernacle and pray to him, not look to the stars. And he's fascinating is that God uses something that was forbidden for his people, but using it to reach Gentiles. It is crazy. And yeah, it's still every year it blows my mind. I just think, what is the star? How is God, what's God doing with this? What, what was done in the past? And it actually, I find it humbling because it should challenge us on how God can use anything to reach Mm. people. Mm. And for particularly for faithful Israelites who would never ever delve into this stuff, magicians, magi stuff, to actually call magicians using their kind of means to worship his son, that just blows my mind. And I find it challenging for us in the 21st century, what means can God use to reach those who don't know him? Yeah, so it is pretty cool. It's a great story. Um, I have a final question before I give it to you. This is, why is Jesus' kingship important? This is kind of the so what question. What, what's the point of all this? We've learned lots of cool facts about gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and Saturn, and Jupiter, and connecting with kingship. But the so what question, why is Jesus' kingship important? And I think it's a really good question. I think you kind of, kind of touched on something before that of the Queen of England right? I think for us in like a modern day, I don't know about you guys. I mean, the, the idea of a king is, is foreign to me. Like I, that's not something that I can really connect to. And I think that that makes it sometimes hard for us to fully appreciate the magnitude of that element of Jesus, that he was king. That, and and this, this idea is threaded throughout the New Testament of Jesus as King. Um, there's actually, a, again, it's the second time I'm quoting N.T. Wright this morning. He's sort of my my theological crush at the moment. But sorry. look, um, but he he actually uh, wrote this really great book called How God Became King: The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Which I mean, you almost don't need to quote it. It says it in the title right there: How God Became King: The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. And what he's sort of asserting in this in this book is that when we forget or or lose focus on the kingship of Jesus, we actually start to have our theology slightly skewed a little bit in the wrong way. So it's a bit of a long quote, but it's a good one. So I'll read it all out. He says, our questions have been wrongly put because they haven't been about the kingdom. They haven't been about God's sovereign saving rule coming on earth as in heaven. Instead, our questions have been about a salvation that rescues people from the world instead of rescuing people for the world. So that's, I think that's so good. We, we focus on a salvation that rescues people from the world instead of rescuing them for the world. So going to heaven has, has only really been the object ever since the Middle Ages, right? And, and, and in the Western church today. Um, but sin is, is, is this idea of it's what stops us from getting there. So the cross must deal with sin so that we can leave this world and go to the much better one in the sky or, or in eternity or heaven, right? But this is simply untrue to the story the Gospels are telling which again explains why we've all misread these wonderful texts. Whatever the cross achieves must be articulated. So this importance of Jesus's crucifixion for our sins so we can have a relationship with him, that is still pivotal 
to the gospel narrative. But if we are to take the four gospels seriously within the context of the uh, within the context of the kingdom bringing victory. And I think it's this idea that you've touched on recently before that when we start focusing on, on, on the story that the Bible is telling us, this idea that Jesus is bringing kingdom from heaven onto earth, and we are, are, as his followers, meant to be doing that, well, suddenly we are not living in this duality way that spirit is good and flesh is bad, heaven is good, and, and earth is something for us to just remove and, and withdraw from. But we're actually meant to go out into the world and spread the kingdom of heaven as, you know, kings and queens of, you know, the, the gospel. And this is just is completely changes how the gospel actually functions for us on a practical day-to-day basis when we recognize that Jesus is not only king of heaven, but king of earth. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.